We're all in this phase of new year, new microbiome, because you are changing your diet. Your microbiome, your gut microbiome, is adapted to the food that you were eating, and then you made a dietary change. And so it's going to take time for your gut microbes to adapt to what you have done and these new foods that you're now introducing. And as you're easing in your diet, you may want to start with more cooked foods prior to progressing to the raw foods. The cooked foods are a little bit easier to digest, and for that reason, we'll have a little bit less gas and bloating. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Today's show, we will spend it focusing on your gut. We're going to be preparing it to get into tip top shape and we're even going to get a little bit of help for a problem that a lot of new vegans face. And if we're being honest, it's also a problem that a lot of longtime vegans face from time to time as well. Because on the show today, my friends, we will be talking about gas. Dr. Will Bolsowitz is here to step into the exam room with us, but my friend, he is not full of hot air. No, no. He is full of answers, answers to the questions that you sent in to the exam room live. So here's what's on tap for today's wonderful gut health Q&A. Gas, of course, we're going to be talking about tips for dealing with it as you're cranking up the amount of fiber in your diet. But we're not going to stop there. This is a full-ranging gut health Q&A, so we'll also be answering a question about cruciferous veggies and the effect that they have on your gut and also onions and garlic and how to increase the diversity of microbiome in your gut and how to deal with bacteria overgrowth and of course the ever popular question how can you repopulate your gut with good bacteria after you take antibiotics so dr b is going to address all of that and a slew of other questions as well. So let's go ahead and welcome in right now the author of Fiber Fueled and get a little bit dirty with a gut health checkup as Dr. B steps into the exam room and we open up the doctor's mailbag. How you doing, Dr. B? Chuck, it's great to see you today. Thank you for inviting me on the show, and I'm, I'm so excited to see what questions come up. I, I enjoy the challenge. Oh, man, you know, the listeners love it when you're on because you are one of those doctors who can feel just about anything. So I'm really looking forward to throwing quite a few curveballs your way and seeing if you can hit these things. You know, you got to be careful because if you throw, if you hang the curveball, I might be able to slap a home run on that. So you got to be careful with that. 
All right. All right. I see what you're doing, Silver Slugger. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, get that first question out of the way. And oh my goodness, we're just going to start with a doozy. This one courtesy of JS. I'm going to read this one verbatim. He says, I'm on day eight of eating a whole food plant-based diet and the gas and the bloating is absolutely ridiculous. What is going on? I'm drinking so much water and having some amazing bowel movements, but my <laughs> My bowels are moving so much better, but my bloating is not good at all. So what can we do to help JS here? Yeah, JS, thank you for the question. So, you know, this is day eight, right? So I'm assuming that this is part of a New Year's resolution. We're all in this phase of new year, new you. And in your case, this is new year, new microbiome, because you are changing your diet, your microbiome, your gut microbiome is adapted to the food that you were eating up until January. And then you made a dietary change. And so it's going to take time for your gut microbes to adapt to what you have done and these new foods that you're now introducing in higher concentrations and higher proportions. And so many times what we do is we wanna go slow and low as we introduce these new foods. But a couple of tips that we can look at with you specifically. One of them is make sure that you're moving your bowels. Make sure that you're keeping things moving. If a person is constipated, they are gonna get so much more gas and bloating from these foods than they normally would. Another thing that you could potentially do is uh, take a probiotic. So probiotics can be beneficial in terms of helping with digestion. And as you're easing in your diet, you may wanna start with more cooked foods prior to progressing to the raw foods the cooked foods are a little bit easier to digest, and for that reason, we'll have a little bit less gas and bloating associated with them. Let's see if we can put a timetable on this because we have a great question here from Queen Logic. Just came in. Uh, Queen Logic writes, I get a lot of gas with beans and hummus and have had diarrhea since going vegan. It's been about four months. Should I give it more time? Please help. Yeah. So the good news is number one, let me jump all the way to the bottom of that question where she says that she's worried that the vegan diet is destroying her gut. Good news. The vegan diet is not destroying your gut. What you are experiencing is sloppy digestion. This is not indicative of you actually causing damage to the gut. What it is, is that your gut is struggling to process and digest these foods. And what you brought up, beans, hummus. We're talking about foods in the exact same category. We're talking about legumes. Legumes are high in fiber. They're high in resistant starches. And they're also high in a specific type of uh, complex polysaccharide called galactans or galactosaccharides. Galacto, um, these are FODMAPs. And these FODMAPs can elicit symptoms when they are introduced to an excessive amount. This may be, for you, a point of vulnerability. And so what you may need to do is work with a registered dietitian to back down just a little bit on these legumes. Allow your body an opportunity to adapt, and it will grow stronger. But you need to work your way into it and ease into it with these foods where the sensitivity exists. Marie here is wondering when she is bloated, will drinking water help her out? 
Drinking water can help. It's certainly a better choice than carbonated beverages. Carbonated beverages, you know, the gas that goes in your mouth has to come out one end or the other. So you're either going to belch it out or it's going to pass all the way through the intestines and come out the other end uh, from below. So drinking water is a good option relative to carbonated beverages. Um, and in addition to that, it's important that we keep our bowels moving. So I mentioned this already a little bit, Chuck. The number one cause of gas and bloating in my clinic is constipation. People need to be aware that gas and bloating often can be indicative of incomplete evacuation. You could go every day and still be constipated. And the value of water is that we're, we're helping to float the log downstream. If the creek bed is dry, that log is going to get stuck in the rocks. But if we can drink enough water, then we can help to float the log downstream and get it moving through. That's what we want. We want to get into a nice rhythm and keep the bowels moving. I love you, man. Float the log downstream. Outstanding. Um, <laughs> so uh, somebody else is wondering about how else to treat constipation if not uh, just drinking water. What other ways can uh, they implement some tips to get things going down there? Get that log moving. Yeah, get that log moving. They're, they're, so to me, I spend my days as a GI doctor literally trying to get people into a rhythm. And that's what the body thrives on. Our digestion is improved. Food sensitivities disappear when you get your body into that rhythm. And that means correcting for underlying constipation. For the person who is mildly constipated, drinking more water, potentially increasing your fiber consumption, and taking a little walk after meals, exercise, moving your body. These are some of the simple measures that can help to get things moving again. But for the person who is who has moderate to severe constipation, that's not going to be adequate. And what I would say is, number one, we need to get things moving. We need to get you into a rhythm. And in my clinic, this may surprise people, Chuck, because I wrote a book about how much I love fiber. But in my clinic, I actually will hold off on ramping up fiber until I get people into a better rhythm with constipation. Because when they are constipated, if you don't move it through, the fiber turns into cement and they get more gas and bloated and then they get frustrated and they feel like a vegan diet or a plant-based diet is not for them. A vegan diet or a plant-based diet is the ideal diet for your gut health. So one of the things that you can try is magnesium before bedtime. Magnesium is good for the bowels. It's good for sleep. It's good for anxiety, which frankly, you know, we all have some right now. There's a lot going on and it's even good for headaches. So a little bit of magnesium supplementation before bedtime can help to jumpstart the bowels, get them moving again. And once you get them moving, that's the time that you want to go low and slow and start ramping up your fiber. Here's an interesting question. We've talked a lot about food, but what about a beverage? Tracy is wondering about LaCroix. Is that good or bad? Should that be avoided? Yeah. So LaCroix, I mean, you know, the reality is this, Chuck, nutrition is about substitutions. What are you replacing with what? They have studies. The meat industry has funded studies that can make meat look like it's healthy when you compare it to trans fats. I mean, that's like, you know, okay, that's healthy when you're comparing it to raw sewage. Congratulations. It's all about substitutions. So what are we replacing with what? If you're telling me that you're drinking LaCroix instead of a diet soda beverage, okay, that's a step in the right direction. But guess what? The healthiest beverage on the entire planet 
we are so fortunate here in the United States to have virtually unlimited access to, which is water. Water is going to be healthier than any other beverage out there. At the, in, at the top of the nutritional pyramid, at the total top, is water. So you know, LaCroix, if you enjoy it, so be it. I like carbonated beverages too, but you can do better by substituting water. All right. Let's talk about stress here. Somebody is wondering whether or not there's a link between stress and gut health. They say that they are eating a vegan diet. They feel great. But in the last few months, a little bit of digestive problems. And the only change that they've had in their life is stress. So could that be the culprit? We're all feeling the stress. This is a crazy time. Literally new record for the number of COVID-19 deaths yesterday. And we all know what happened last Wednesday, right? So this is a stressful time. And the reality is this, you can eat the ideal diet. You could eat the diet that I recommend. You could exercise, you could sleep, you could meditate. But if you are not at peace with the stress in your life, it is going to have negative consequences on your gut. And these are the people who do everything right. And yet their gut health is not where they want it to be. Stress without question adversely affects the health of your microbiome. There's actually a mechanism through which this works. A hormone released by the pituitary gland called CRF, corticotropin releasing factor, activates basically the activates the stress response. And when you activate the stress response, you actually induce damage to the microbiome. They call that dysbiosis. There's a reason that we have a stress response it, it served us really well when we were trying to run away from saber-toothed tigers back in the day. But in 2021, with constant daily stimulation, constantly being triggered by stress, that stress response is not doing us well because it can adversely affect our, our, our gut health because it's constant, it's basal, it's always there. So we need to work to try to improve that. Great question here from Tonda. Wants to know if putting lemon in water will aid in digestion. I love I love lemon water. I enjoy it. I see no downside to it from my perspective. But I have not seen a study that says that there is a magical property to lemon water or to celery juice, for that matter. If you enjoy it, if you're comfortable with the cost of it, lemon water is a lot less expensive than celery juice. If you're comfortable with the cost of it and you enjoy it and you think it makes you feel better, I'm here to support you. But it's there is no study to say that this is a magical solve of some variety. Great question here from Naveen. Wants to know, how can we increase the diversity of gut bacteria in our microbiome? Thank you, Naveen. You have just thrown me the alley-oop that I've been waiting for this entire time, <laughs> which is that the single greatest predictor of, and I swear I am not Naveen, I don't create fake accounts to submit questions to Chuck, I swear. <laughs> the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants within our diet. It has been scientifically validated. We need to eat more variety. This, I feel like, is my message to the vegan community. And even if you're not vegan, this is my message to you which is that if you want a healthy gut microbiome, you have to fuel that microbiome with fiber. And not all fiber is created the same. Different plants have different types of fiber. When you eat a broad diversity of plants, you are eating the diet that 
get, allows all of your gut microbes to feast at the table. And that's how we build a diverse microbiome. And Chuck, for what it's worth real quick, there was a brand new study that came out on Monday that was published in the top journal in the world. The journal is Nature. And it's from Tim Spector, one of the top microbiome uh, researchers on the planet. And yet again, yet again, their research findings support the power and the importance of a diverse plant-based diet. If you read the study from Nature, Tim Spector, you will once again see diversity of plants is the key to gut health. So we're talking about diversity, and to me, that seems like a large quantity, but let's talk about a large quantity of something that may be more nefarious. Talking uh, about a question here from Vasil wants to know, do you have any advice for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Mm. Okay, so small intestine bacterial overgrowth, otherwise known as SIBO. Number one, probably my biggest piece of advice, Chuck, is don't believe everything that you read on the internet. The problem with SIBO is that there is there is truth. And then there is the conversation that exists on the internet where a small part of that conversation is the truth. And then most of it is just hogwash. It's just tomfoolery, okay? It is not going to help you if it is not science-based. When it comes to small intestine bacterial overgrowth, the most important thing is to be sure that you have evaluated for other potential causes of small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Make sure that there's no constipation. Make sure that there's no celiac disease. I see patients who come to my clinic multiple times per day who say, doc, I have SIBO. And I say, step one, we need to make sure. And that includes an evaluation for other causes. And the vast majority of the time, Chuck, I find that it's something else. And when you find that it's something else, it empowers you because you treat that other condition. Most people who have SIBO are going to hear about antibiotic protocols. They're going to hear about antimicrobial protocols, which are literally just herbs and supplements that are effectively antibiotics. And none of those are going to add diversity to your microbiome. What is going to add diversity is a plant-based diet and having the proper approach for how to implement that is the key to really, truly curing SIBO. The antibiotics, temporary improvement, and then it comes right back. That's what we see in the studies. Antibiotics, but now let's talk probiotics. One of our exam roomies now is asking, are probiotic-rich foods necessary to have a healthy microbiome? It's a great question. Uh, so probiotic-rich foods, really what we're talking about is we're talking about fermented foods. And if you look back through the course of human history, all cultures in human history had fermented foods as a part of their celebrated food tradition. Part of it was that they discovered that they would have these, these crops that would come to harvest and they didn't have refrigerators. So how are we going to store all this cabbage? Well, someone discovered that you could turn it into sauerkraut and the sauerkraut will last all the way through the winter. And so this is where the origin of this comes from. And we, in the 19th and 20th century, invented ways to preserve food that were not these food traditions. But the problem is our preservatives are designed to destroy microbes. So do we need fermented foods? 
I haven't seen a study that says that we need fermented foods, but it's very hard to answer that because there's no one who, there's no one in the United States who grew up eating an excessive amount of fermented foods relative to the past. And so from my perspective, I believe that fermented foods can enhance the health of your microbiome. They are consumed in moderation, not large amounts. And that's really all that you need. But what we do see in our studies, Chuck, is that fermented foods, the microbes that you will find in these active cultures start showing up in the human microbiome. And so what that means is that they are getting through and they are able to provide benefit. That's interesting. Here in the U.S., fermented foods not nearly as popular, say, as a country like Korea, where kimchi is just the staple there. Have there been any head-to-head studies looking at the general gut health of residents of the two countries? Oh, gosh, that is a great question. So um, what, what we see in many of these countries, for example, you're seeing this unfold in China, where they consumed a more traditional diet up until very recently. And as they have industrialized, they have unfortunately picked up our bad habits as Americans. Our culture is more powerful than many of us realize. And it goes out to the world. The next thing you know, there's McDonald's and Starbucks and Kentucky Fried Chicken on every corner. And so what we have seen is that in these cultures, they are now suffering with new diseases that they previously were not exposed to And now they are because of the consequential effects on their gut microbiome. For example, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, these are emerging conditions in these countries. Now, is it that they have cut back on fermented foods or is it that they're eating Kentucky Fried Chicken? I think that there's a very strong argument that clearly eating Kentucky Fried Chicken is not doing them any favors from a health perspective. So whether or not it's the fermented foods is a little bit hard to say, Chuck. Yeah, you don't want to smell what the colonel is cooking. No good can come from a KFC run. Um, so you remember that old commercial with Bino, there will be no gas? Yes. All right. So we have a question here from Bob who's wondering whether or not it's okay to use Bino to, in fact, control gas. Yeah, Bino, there's no, I don't see any downside to using Bino. You, you, don't, you don't become addicted to it or develop some sort of habit from it. It can help to reduce gas. You know, some of the other stuff with legumes and beans that can reduce gas, you can soak if it's dried, soak, toss out the water, new water, soak again, toss out the water, new water, use new water when you cook. All right. So basically you're rinsing them. If it's canned beans, make sure that you thoroughly rinse your beans. You will help to to get rid of this one carbohydrate called raffinose which is the source of a lot of the gas and bloating that you get from beans. Um, Go low, go slow when it comes to beans if you're not used to them. At this point in my life, I can pile on the beans, but there was a point in my life where if I ate even a little too much, I would be folded over with cramps in my abdomen. So, And then one of the last things is you can actually add a little bit of seaweed when you're cooking your beans. And this seems to also help to um, basically eradicate the raffinose and improve the experience with less gas and bloating. Here's a great question from Shishir, wants to know how many times throughout the day we should be eating. Oh gosh, that's, you know, it's really hard to um, answer that question because I feel like there is some bio-individuality to to the response to that question. So, you know, there are some people who really seem to thrive by consuming breakfast on a daily basis. And for myself, I consume 
breakfast, like if you follow my Instagram, you'll see my smoothie bowls on the weekend. My wife always makes a smoothie every single day. It's just on the weekend. That's the only time that I'm around to actually have it. Um, most weekdays I drink coffee, I drink water and I'm not doing much else until lunchtime. So, and I think that there needs to be a little bit of an intuitive element. See how you personally feel as you are exploring these possibilities, whether it's that you feel better by consuming breakfast or do you feel better by delaying it a little bit and giving yourself a little bit of a prolonged, uh, a prolonged fast from the night before? I have great follow-up to that coming in from Thomas wants to know, uh, they write, I've heard that it's not good to eat between meals in order to help move food along. Is that true? Gosh, I haven't seen anything specifically, uh, that says that there's metabolic consequences to eating between meals. I, I haven't seen that. Um, you know, I, I do believe that it, there's a point at which you can develop, if you make rigid rules, say, I'm not going to have a piece of fruit. I'm not going to have a snack to hold me over. And you create these rigid rules and then you end up with a toxic level of hunger. And it's dinner time, and next thing you know, you're reaching for the for the simple carbohydrates, like you're reaching for the chips or something like that, because you're starving and you're just trying to satiate yourself. And then you have a less healthy dinner, or you overeat, or whatever it may be. So I, I, again, I think that I come back to I think that there's an intuitive element to this. If you find that you get hungry in the afternoon, have a piece of fruit. That's a great time to have a piece of fruit. Mona wondering, what about onions and garlic? She says that she's hearing conflicting info about them in terms of gut health. Oh, they're incredible for gut health. They're incredible. I'm not sure where the conflict would come from, to be honest with you, and it certainly would not be science-based. The issue with onions and garlic, similar to beans, similar to whole grains, the issue is that they contain FODMAPs. FODMAPs are the fermentable parts of our food. Many of us know if you eat too much too much garlic, too, too much onions, you may get gas and bloating. And that's related to the fructans, which are FODMAPs that you will find in onions and garlic. Now, fructans are not harming your gut. Fructans are actually prebiotic. They feed the microbiome. We want fructans. We want more of them. But the issue is that each one of us has a certain amount that we're capable of processing and digesting and so we want to make sure that we don't overdo it because when we overdo it, then we are taxing our, our gut. It is incapable of keeping up with that level of consumption. And then you get the gas and the bloating or dis discomfort. And some people may misinterpret that, but that is not harming the gut. That is just sloppy digestion. Uh, I want to say hi to Allison, who's watching us today all the way in New Zealand. She says, normally she can't make the live shows because she's at work, but it's the summer holiday. So Allison, we are so glad that you're here. And, and I'm jealous that it's summer in New Zealand. It's like 33 degrees outside my window right now. So, so glad that you could be here with us. Uh, Dr. B, next question comes to us from Sandra. And I'm sure that this is one that you get quite a bit. She says that her gut is messed up after three rounds of antibiotics. What can she do to get her gut health back on track? Okay. Number one, this is going to surprise a lot of people. The answer is not probiotics. There was a study published in the journal Cell out of the Weizmann Institute, which is in Israel, in September of 2018, where they showed convincingly that when you take probiotics after antibiotics, 
you actually slow the recovery of the gut microbiome? The answer is not probiotics. The answer is diet, lifestyle, prebiotics, feed the microbiome. What we want when we're exposed to antibiotics is we want to bring back the good guys, bring them back. Well, how do we bring them back? They love fiber. That's what they want. Feed your gut bugs their fiber. Eat more diversity of plants. Don't sabotage your gut with saturated fat, with sugars, with vegetable oils. Focus on the fruits, the vegetables, the whole grain seeds, nuts, and legumes. Get a good night's rest, exercise, spend time outdoors, and don't drink too much alcohol. Those are the tips. You ready for a little gut bacteria battle of the sexes? Uh-oh, here we go. All right, here's one from Janine. She says, hubby and I eat the same diet. We've been doing it for about eight months, but his gas is still awful. Is there a difference between men and women, or is it a case of his gut is simply still healing? I don't think it's gender specific. I think that it's human specific. Each one of us has a unique gut microbiome. Chuck, there is no one on the planet with your gut microbiome. It's as unique as your personal fingerprint. And in fact, our studies show that you and I probably share less than 30% of the same gut bugs. We're very different. Even among identical twins, even among identical twins, they only share about 34% of the same gut bugs. They're that different. And so I think that the issue is this is a unique human being and their gut is adapting differently to the dietary change. And there may be some stuff. There may be some stuff underlying the issue that needs to be explored and examined with a gastroenterologist. You need to make sure that there's no medical explanation for this, that it's, that is just a food sensitivity or that it's the way that the gut is processing. Interesting question here from another exam roomie, wondering whether juice fasting one day a month will be helpful for gut health. So I don't think that the juice is the key part. I think that the more important part is giving your gut a rest. And whether you choose to do that for one day a month or whether you do choose to do some sort of pattern like a time-restricted eating pattern where you say, I'm going to have dinner nice and early and I'm not going to have any late night snacks and I'm going to wait at least 12 hours before I eat solid food again. Whichever way we're talking about, it's about giving the gut a break, allowing it to rest and to recalibrate. These gut bugs, they're alive, just like you and I are, if you come at us 24 hours a day, you will exhaust us. I know because I used to work that way as a medical resident. And so they're alive just like us. They need a break. The juice itself, juice has no fiber. We removed the most important part of the plant and we threw it in the trash. I find that to be very sad. Why are we throwing away the most important part of the plant and then keeping the sugar? And so from my perspective, it's not about the juice. It's about giving your gut bugs a little rest once in a while. Uh, here's an interesting one. We've talked about beans and hummus, but we haven't talked yet about cruciferous vegetables. Mason is wondering about this. They write that they get stomach and bowel pain when they do eat cruciferous vegetables. So what can they do to help alleviate that? Yeah, one of the, so cru cruciferous vegetables, I love them. They're high in fiber. They have powerful cancer-fighting phytochemicals. But those cancer-fighting phytochemicals are often sulfur-based. And this is where part of the challenge can come from in terms of food sensitivities. 
the key here is number one, cook your food. You need to make sure that you're cooking your cruciferous vegetables if you have a sensitivity in the beginning. Many people will struggle with raw broccoli, raw Brussels sprouts, um, raw kale. And then when you cook them or you steam them, things of that variety, you make them far more digestible, far easier to consume. So that's number one. Number two, you may need to back down a little bit on the portion size. And what that means is there's an opportunity to elevate something else. So choose something outside of the cruciferous family. For example, if you're making a salad and you got some kale or you got some arugula, those are cruciferous. Okay, cool. Do a little bit of those and then let's get some spinach in there. The spinach is not cruciferous and that helps to balance things out a little bit. All right. We got time for just a couple of more. Here's a good one. Somebody is wondering, how can I deal with GERD and gastritis while eating a plant-based diet? So the good news, a plant-based diet is the ideal diet for acid reflux. There was a study that was done where a, a predominantly plant-based, I mean, almost exclusively plant-based diet, Mediterranean diet, they showed benefit for acid reflux. There was another study, Chuck, where they gave people fiber and fiber improved acid reflux. How does that work? Well, that's kind of interesting. It has nothing to do with neutralizing stomach acid. Fiber doesn't do that. What it does is it feeds the microbiome. Acid reflux is connected to the microbiome. Acid reflux is a motility disorder brought on by a damaged microbiome because it plays such an important role in keeping things moving. The same is true with the stomach. We want to empty the stomach. So what's the key here? The key from my perspective is to make absolutely sure that we are keeping things moving through because if you become constipated, then you are going to slow down motility in the stomach. You're going to slow down motility in the esophagus, and that's going to lead to more acid reflux and more likelihood of having gastritis. I want to take a second to say hi to Mark, who's watching us in Colorado today, says that he just celebrated his one year anniversary of being vegan and he's feeling great. So Mark, thank you so very, yeah, I see you've raised the roof over there, Dr. Will. This is a, congratulations, my friend. That is, that is so great. I'm so happy that you're doing so well and let us know how you're doing when you hit your second anniversary, my friend, we'll have a party for you. Um, let's sneak in uh, just two more questions here. And this is an interesting one from Annette. She wants to know, can my son who has ulcerative colitis follow your book with some adjustments? Your book, of course, being fiber-fueled. Uh, yeah. So, so I do believe that it's possible to follow my book with some adjustments, but the key is this. You may need to work with a registered dietitian to personalize. And if you read the book, what you'll see is that the very first page that I wrote was the author's note. And that's what I say, is that this is not meant to just implement it as is, that you should make this your own and when appropriate, when necessary, work with a uh, health professional who can help to guide you on this journey. A plant-based diet from my perspective, Chuck, is the ideal diet for ulcerative colitis. The challenge, the paradox is that the person with ulcerative colitis is also the person who's going to struggle the most to get this diet started and on board. And so it takes patience, it takes persistence, it takes good um, uh, guidance from a trained professional. And But just know, this is the right choice. And when you get there, you will be reaping the reward in terms of your disease. 
I want to close with a question of my own. Uh, I had the opportunity earlier today to tape an upcoming episode with a gentleman by the name Dr. Mark Freeman, just a phenomenal cardiologist. And he and I were talking about a study that compared the uh, malnutrition rates among people who are obese versus those who are underweight, perhaps struggling with anorexia, and how equally they, uh, they have malnutrition. So I'm wondering, how is it in terms of gas here that somebody who is significantly overweight can have the same amount of gas while eating a very low fiber diet that is rich in ultra processed foods, right? But they still have a ton of gas, but then you eat this healthy diet, right? That's chock full of beans, greens, grains, legumes, like all the good stuff that we've been talking about. How is it that they can have equal gas profiles? If a gas profile is even a thing. Right. Well, so if we're going to, if we're going to call this a gas profile, Chuck, and by the way, if this is, if this is the curveball, I, I tip my cap to you. This is quite a curveball. Thank you for this. Yes, sir. Um, it's a good one. So, but if we're going to call, if we're going to describe this as a gas profile, which I, I understand what you mean. And I think it's a fair description, meaning sort of the total volume of gas that you are producing. And what you're saying is that why would it be that a person who is potentially obese and is consuming a low fiber, high processed food diet that is basically devoid of plants, why would they produce the same amount of gas as someone who is consuming a whole food plant-based diet with fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, that's nuts and legumes, recognizing that the things that produce, that, that, that produce the gas come from the plants? Why would that be? Well, the reason why is that the only variable isn't the diet. The second variable is the microbiome. The microbiome is critically involved in the processing and digest digestion of these foods. And when you have an unhealthy microbiome, which we know that obesity has been connected to damage to the gut microbiome, which we call dysbiosis, it's been connected to a loss of biodiversity within the microbiome. When you have an unhealthy microbiome, you are going to produce way more gas from less of these plant foods because there is no efficiency in your process. It's sloppy digestion. But on the flip side, the person who is consuming the whole food plant-based diet, they may be putting down the foods that produce gas into their gut, but their gut is stepping and rising up to the occasion to support their digestion, to give them what they need. Because once the gut settles in and gets adapted to what you're doing from a dietary perspective, this is actually what they want. This is their food. They thrive on this food. And what you will find is that you will reach a point where the gas and bloating that, that you thought you couldn't eat these foods because you get gas and bloating you will reach a point where your gut is thriving because of these foods and the gas and bloating is gone. Mm. And that's what we want. That is fantastic. Today's phrase that pays is sloppy digestion. You've coined a new phrase for me. I think that this is fantastic. It's like a sloppy Joe, but even sloppier and, and even more <laughs> disgusting. 
The book is Fiber Fueled. My guest today has been Dr. Will Bolsowitz, and he is simply amazing. Go ahead and give him a follow on Instagram. If we could throw up his profile right now, that would be fantastic. There it is, the Gut Health MD, a fantastic follow. The book is even better, Fiber Fueled. Dr. B, thank you so much. We will talk to you again next month, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, everyone, for coming and hanging with us today. I enjoyed all the questions. It was a great time. Thank you. If there's a question burning in your belly that you would like for the doctor to answer, the best way to get that answer is to join us for the exam room live. We do that every Wednesday over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. We kick things off at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. So to get your question submitted to the doctor's mailbag, all you need to do is to tweet it to me at Chuck Carroll WLC. Just make sure when you send it, you use that hashtag exam room live. And we do have a link to my Twitter account in the episode notes. What a great doctor. Dr. Will Bolsowitz is. Can't recommend him highly enough. Matter of fact, if you head over to theplantfedgut.com right now, you can sign up for his free five-day course. It comes with daily lessons and challenges with simple tips and methods for a happier and healthier gut. And while you're clicking around, I do have a big favor to ask. Recently, the show was nominated by Veg News as being the best vegan podcast for 2020 such an extraordinary honor. We are truly, truly humbled, and we would really appreciate it if you feel like you get good information out of this show, if you feel like you become inspired by the show. If you could just take a moment to head over to vegnews.com slash veggieawards and cast your vote for The Exam Room as the best vegan podcast of 2020, we would deeply appreciate it. The podcast category is actually the 56th in a long line of categories. But you know what? It goes by really quickly and it's a lot of fun. You can cast your vote for your favorite plant-based milks and your favorite plant-based snacks and your favorite cruelty-free cosmetics and your favorite plant-based athletes and activists and celebrities. And then when you get to number 56... That is the best vegan podcast category. If you could please cast your vote for the exam room, we would greatly appreciate it. And I know Dr. Neil Barnard would appreciate it too if you would cast a vote for him. He's actually nominated for an award in category number 55. So just one before the exam room. So while you're there, go ahead and give Dr. Barnard a vote as well. And you can find a link to cast those ballots in the episode notes or simply head over to vegnews.com slash veggie awards. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to the amazing gut health MD, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, for helping to raise our gut health IQs today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>